0: This episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Seton Home Study School, an accredited school assisting homeschooling parents with an academically excellent and authentically Catholic curriculum. For more information, go to seatonhome.org.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Cotton, who uh, made a face just a moment ago that suggests that he thinks I am speaking too
0: loudly i it's not that you were, I, you took me by surprise you 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 <laughs> you, you, you kind of came in hot like the kool-aid man there I... oh yeah
1: well ed as much as i would like a nice cool glass of kool-aid and may well have one later on today we have too much to talk about to be mucking about with kool-aid and um you know large glass anthropomorphic pitchers we've got stuff to talk about stuff to do um, some of which is important, some of which is just of interest, and, uh, and I think it's time for us to get started. Uh, okay. Okay. No, no banter this week. All
0: right. Let's...
1: <laughs> well, no banter this week because we just spent, you and I just spent, you know, 20 minutes talking about what we were going to talk about, and I don't even think we're going to get through the first thing. But the first thing is uh, trivial. Trivial. Um nevertheless um nevertheless in a certain sense in 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 another sense um interesting uh, I think it can be an opportunity for some education and generally speaking it's my observation that you our listeners out there in podcast land like it when Ed and I talk about matters canonical so Ed here's what we're going to talk about um I don't know if you saw in the news this week that the um first wife so to speak in in a secular sense the, the first wife of President Donald Trump Mrs Ivana Trump um, passed away in her home at the age of, I believe, 73. It is uh, very sad, and we ought to pray for her her soul. But did you see that in the news?
0: I did not. And I'd just like to point out for the record that this was not in the 20 minutes we spent talking about what we were going to we no, talk about. we were going to talk about No, you did this. not. No, you did not. But that's fine. That's fine. So I, I told we're talking, you. I said I
1: mapped the... I, said oh, I mapped. You did. Remember?
0: You did. You mapped... I didn't realize that that, that was prompted by someone having okay, died. Okay, so...
1: Yeah, so, so uh, the first wife of Donald Trump... Ivana Trump um, passed away uh, at her home this week at the age of 73. And, um, you know, God rest her and may she rest in peace. May perpetual light shine upon her. But some listeners have asked, um, with regard to her death, what that means about the canonical status of Donald Trump's marriage, or rather what that means about Donald Trump's sort of status with regard to the prospect of marriage, um, as it is understood by our mother, the church, and the reason for this, Ed is because Donald Trump, as you know, is one of the more famous uh, well among things that he is well known for. He had a stint, I think you probably know uh, in the White House. Um, he built some buildings in um, the uh, New York City area and a, um, a, a a a crumbling casino in Atlantic City. I say that he built a crumbling casino because it really was crumbling. Uh, at the time that he built it, a crumbling casino in Atlantic City. Uh, He had a very popular um, reality game show on, I want to say, NBC entitled The Apprentice followed by Celebrity Apprentice. Um, But he is also well known for being a serial monogamist or (laughs) attempting at least serial monogamy for having had several um, wives. Uh, I'm aware of
0: most of those things about him, yes.
1: Okay. Okay. So uh, 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 more than one listener to this show reached out to me this week to basically say, um, with the death of Donald Trump's first wife, Ivana Trump, kind of what does that mean for Donald Trump's status vis-a-vis the prospect of marriage uh, as it's understood and governed by the Catholic Church? And the reason is because I think, you know, here's a person who has had several marriages and a couple of divorces and, um, and uh, you know, presumably this first wife of his. Um, the church presumes the validity of a marriage. So presumably this first wife of his, Ivana Trump, the church regards, ha- had regarded her as Donald Trump's uh, wife, right?
0: I Yeah, I mean, marriage enjoys the favor of the law. So the marriage presumption of, the favor of the prior bond would be there for that. And I am aware that the, I believe, I'm assuming still the current putative mrs trump um is is a catholic
1: yes from the perspective of the church i think his consort
0: his consort uh, his, his concubine concert. so i concubine yeah, well, is the canonical term um are they uh, no hang on let's just get, let's clarify terms up front if we are talking about the presumption in favor of another union and he is living in a stable union in more Uxoria with this new person that is king that's concubinage that's what the church calls concubinage is it not
1: yeah, it is. You could yes, it is. Although juridically sometimes such persons are also referred to as consorts just for the sake of being, you know, nice. At any rate, I mapped out the marriages of Donald Trump so that we could talk through them and see kind of what where we think Donald Trump lands canonically in, in terms of marriage or where he might land canonically in terms of marriage. The reason we're doing this, friends, is because yeah, it's sort of interesting, but also I think that there are a few lessons to learn along the way about what the church believes and teaches and holds about marriage wouldn't you say ed and how she governs it
0: i absolutely to understand the church's marriage law is to get a window into the juridical and theological mind of the church and how it how the rubber meets the road in the sacraments
1: okay in 1977 um donald trump uh contra a baptized non-catholic um contracted marriage with I, i don't know her maiden name but ivana trump uh and uh the pair remained uh, in a, in a legally recognized marriage until 1991. Ivana Trump, insofar as I can tell, I presume is unbaptized, um, because of because she was born, you know, in the in the Soviet era. It's possible that she was baptized, but I, for simplicity's sake, I have been presuming that she is unbaptized. Okay. Okay. Ivana Trump married 1977, divorced 1991. Okay. Um, subsequently, Donald Trump married a. Um, a, uh, a, a model um, named Marla Maples, married 1993, divorced 1999. Miss Maples uh, was a baptized non-Catholic. She was baptized in her, um, uh, her, Baptist, her family's Baptist church at the age of nine. Uh, after that union went south in 1999, uh, Mr. Trump took a little break from marriage until contracting in 2005 uh, marriage with Melania Trump. Um, Melania Trump, we know, is a baptized Catholic, but the marriage was celebrated in Episcopalian church and not according to a canonical form. So, Ivana, 1977. Um, Ivana presumably unbaptized, Trump a baptized person, divorce 1991, no canonical form. Maples... Uh, 1993, uh, marriage contracted, baptized non-Catholic, baptized non-Catholic, divorced 1999, Melania 2005, baptized Catholic, no canonical form. W- with those facts, and what would be sort of your sense of what the c- current canonical status of Mr. Trump might be?
0: Um, okay, so you mentioned canonical form as it applies to the first union, uh, and I would say that No, that's... no
1: one was... A... No one was bound to canonical form. Right, that's what I was about to say, as you said. Yeah, two unbaptized. Or no, two baptized you said non-Catholic
0: one, one baptized non Catholic, one we're assuming Presumably no, unbaptized. Uh, and you mentioned uh, yeah. no canonical form. I was going to say that's a red herring because canonical form only apply, is merely ecclesiastical law that only applies to baptized Catholics of the. That's right.
1: Baptized Catholics are required to be married according to canonical form the church's form for marriage for validity. If a baptized Catholic wants to be validly married, Uh, To anyone, to another baptized Catholic, to a baptized non-Catholic, to an unbaptized person, they must observe canonical form unless they have a dispensation from it. But for baptized non-Catholics or unbaptized people, that
0: rule of the church does not apply, correct? Correct. Um, So, I I mean, you have presumed validity for the First Union because the church always presumes the validity of the marriage. Marriage enjoys the favor of the law. So the
1: church would presume the validity of the marriage between Trump and Ivana. Correct. Donald and Ivana, right. Correct.
0: And it would assume, the it would presume, rather, the validity post-divorce, it would presume the validity over and against the attempted second union to another baptized non-Catholic. Although in that case, not that I think for a second Mr. Trump would have attempted such a thing, but it is possible for the Church to uh, look into the possibility of a, a privilege in favor of the faith if there are some circumstances in which a Catholic is in a uh, non-sacramental union—that is, to or a Christian indeed is in a non-sacramental union—that is, a uh, uh, what you might call a natural law marriage to a non-baptized person.
1: It's true that Mr. Trump, a baptized non-Catholic, could have petitioned for um, a, uh, for a dissolution of the first marriage in favor of the faith to go from being married to an unbaptized person to a baptized person. Assuming you can satisfy
0: can I, the necessary criteria that the, the, the faith and the practice of the faith was the, was the proximate cause of uh, the naufragium of the First Union, which I don't know the details, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the divorce of Mr. and Mrs. Trump in 92, you said, or 93, was 91. probably not to do with Mr. Trump's practice of the Christian religion. I suspect not. I'm, I'm so, guessing that.
1: So, uh, so barring the remote possibility that the church, uh, that Mr. Trump uh, requested for the church a a a privilege of the faith, Mm. uh, which has some scriptural foundations that we we'll talk about another time, I'll Mm. just say, even though I suspect we won't, uh, the church would presume the validity of the first marriage, the marriage to Ivana, even after Mr. Trump attempted marriage with Miss Maples in 1993. Correct. Therefore, the church would presume that the marriage with Miss Maples was invalid. Correct. Then uh, they divorced in 1999 and he marries a Catholic, leaving everything else aside, he marries a Catholic without the observance of canonical form. Which so that is self
0: invalidating.
1: Leaving everything else aside to say nothing of the other things.
0: To say nothing of the other things. The fact that he married a baptized Catholic absent canonical form or a dispensation from it, and we know he didn't have a dispensation from canonical form because the Church doesn't dispense for canonical form for the contraction of a beautifully invalid union, given that Mr. Trump was impeded by prior bond.
1: Um, so if the Church presumed the validity of the first marriage, then all along, the church, if, if for some reason Mr. Trump had found himself in, a, in an ecclesiastical tribunal, all along the church would have been presuming the validity of that first marriage to Ivana Trump, correct? Correct. So it would have presumed the invalidity of, Ms. Ma- uh, of his marriage to Miss Maples, and then the invalidity of his marriage to, to, uh, to um, Melania Trump is self-evident. Yes. Correct? Okay. So um, with Ivana Trump's death, what would that mean? What would be the status of Donald Trump?
0: Well, so it's— uh you're okay i used to be really good at this he would be free to marry he would be right? well no for for sure he would be free to marry i mean you do sometimes and when i was in when i was doing tribunal work which i used to do a lot of before you hired me to get into this catholic journalism game all those years ago yeah we don't do tribunal stuff anymore that used to be my bread and butter was i you know i'd turn out 10 to 15 tribunal um opinions a week. or arguments or briefs or whatever yeah, a week, yeah. Mm-hmm. um and you do sometimes get this sort of, you know, Russian doll history for people who come before the tribunal yeah, and say sure. they've had, you know, three previous attempted unions or whatever, and you have to investigate and rule on each one in turn. That's so kind of what we're doing here. It is kind of what we're doing here. Um, he would be free to marry following the death of his uh, first spouse with whom he had a presumably valid union. I So
1: the church would declare the second union to be invalid by virtue of that prior presumably valid bond. And the fact that Mrs. Trump, Ivana Trump, is dead means that, that the church can do so freely because there's no risk that she would challenge the validity of that marriage, that she Correct. wishing to contract marriage with a Catholic or something like that. Correct. Something else you wish to say about that?
0: Um. Yes. Often it is the case, and I don't think it is the case here, but just as a side note, I would say often it is the case that you have parties contract um, or attempt to contract marriage with some impediment of one kind or another at the initial exchange of consent. And then the church can sort of look back and senate proceedings and there's no new exchange of consent and just sort of say, well, the va- the marriage is now valid from the original defective exchange of consent. But the presumption and requirement of the law there is that the consent perdures. Perdures, right. That's and there right. is no presuming the perduring consent between Mr. Trump and Miss Marples. Maples, Maples,
1: right. Because they, 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 Enacted a civil divorce, which indicates that there was not perdoin consent that they remained married. Yes. Um, so the church could—so so what might happen if we, if these three marriages were the three marriages—or attempted marriages were the attempted marriages in question? The church would um, declare the second marriage to be invalid because of the prior vando of the first. Yes. Um, the first marriage is obviously dissolved by the death of Ivana Trump. Yes. And the third marriage uh, is self-evidently invalid due to the lack of canonical form. Well, and also Therefore, the
0: mentioned. prior bond existent at the time of the attempted contract.
1: Yeah, but but canonical, there doesn't even have to be a declaration of any kind. Why? Right. Because of the con- lack yes. of form, right? It is okay, prima so, facie
0: invalid. Right.
1: So the first one is presumed valid but dissolved by death. The second one can be declared to be invalid by virtue of the prior bond. The third one is uh, is on its face invalid because of the the lack of form to say nothing of the other things, which would put Mr. Trump in the status of being, from the perspective of the church, free to marry, A correct? bachelor, yes. Right. He... <laughs> is that a Donald Trump show
0: i have no idea but it oh, just okay. it, it 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 just seemed like it was worth the gamble to like play that card <laughs> it's just i was it, it was a pure shot from the hip there I was,
1: he might contract marriage with um, mrs trump melania trump his his wife and the mother of his son or uh being free to marry he might contract marriage with
0: someone else yes i would love to see a series of the bachelor with donald trump as the bachelor okay stay on task because there's more coming. no but that would be amazing because i mean that would just be a human zoo i would love <laughs> to see that you know my affinity for car crash and all the true crime reality shows and that really would like be Blind, which
1: is really just a recipe for disaster okay so stay on track here so Sorry. let's just, just summarize the first marriage can be presumed to be valid. The second one can be declared to be invalid by virtue of the prior bond. And the third one is self-evidently invalid. Mr. Trump could be determined to be free to marry and uh, he could contract marriage with Mrs. Trump um, or anyone else, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. Here's where it gets interesting. Ivana Trump had a prior bond. Oh, come on. In 1971, Ivana Trump married a uh, contracted marriage in, in Prague, with a man named Alfred Winkelmeyer. Uh, Alfred Winkelmeyer was um, uh, an Austrian citizen, and Ivana Trump was very open about the fact eventually that she contracted marriage with Alfred Win- Winkelmeyer for the purpose of obtaining Austrian citizenship. They divorced in 1972. Now, as I say, Ivana Trump was very open about the fact that she contracted marriage for the sake of obtaining Austrian citizenship. What do we call that in Canada? We call that simulation. Total simulation, right? She contracted the marriage for the purpose of some external end, right? She was very clear that the only—she herself called it a sham marriage. She said the only reason she did it was to obtain, up, um, well, to obtain well, Austrian whoa, whoa, citizenship. Whoa,
0: whoa, whoa. whoa. You're, you're playing fast and loose with the criteria there. It, it is only true if you actually fund, foundationally, internally withhold the consent to the rest of marriage. You so, can you get married for the, the wrong consent. reasons.
1: Yeah, but she she has said that she was simulating her consent. I think her lawyer at the time. I did a little bit of homework. Said that she did not intend to establish. Right. Um, That's what I'm saying. Because you a, have to actually yeah, a consortium total, totus vitae, a, a partnership for the whole of life. I believe that the, I believe now there's another canonical road they could go down here. I believe that Mrs. Trump said that the the marriage was not con, was not consummated, and so one could you know consider. Okay, the these are but I'm saying but, these are
0: important details. To say that you right. married someone purely for the sake of getting citizenship. Uh, from their country, it does not ipso facto invalidate a marriage because there are plenty of people who get married to regularize their legal status in one country or another, but they are truly married. I mean, but you can but get they're, married they're, those, for the wrong right. reasons, if you, but you can still get married. Yeah. That's
1: right. And I'm glad it's an important catechetical point. Yes. But those, as regards Mrs. Trump and Mr. Trump, those reasons are no longer germane because she is dead. The marriage is dissolved, by, the attempt, putative marriage is dissolved by, by her death, if nothing else um and Okay he is so not going I to have challenge. a question
0: about Hold on there's a lot more happening here. Well no okay, but I want to jump in and see if I can preempt with some of the details. So Sure. Alfred sorry, surname? Winkelmeyer. Winklemeyer. Winklemeyer uh, Herr Winklemeyer. do we know anything of his biography? Well this is what's very Please very Please tell interesting. me he's a Catholic cuz then things get this really interesting. This is what's
1: very very interesting. I would contend Ed, that the that the um the juridic and personal status of Mr. Trump with regard to his freedom to marry is contingent entirely upon the baptismal status of Mr. Winklemeyer. I, I would Why? say
0: that, well, because if Mr. Winklemeyer is a baptized Catholic and married married the, the first attempted at Mrs. Trump, absent canonical form, and she the was... The marriage
1: was self-evidently invalid. No one needs to challenge it. It's exactly. a juridic fact that the marriage is self-evidently invalid. In
0: which case, the presumption of validity presumption then, of law, then goes to Miss Marple's. Well, hold
1: on. Let's just spell that out a little bit more. When he contracted a civil marriage in 1971 with Ivana Zenyakova, if he was a baptized Catholic, the marriage was on its face invalid because he did not observe canonical form. Yes. If that marriage was on itself, by itself invalid, because he, a Catholic, did not observe canonical form, then we can continue to presume the validity of the marriage between Ivana and Donald. Correct. If we can presume the validity of marriage between Ivana and Donald, then we can conclude that the marriage between Marla and Donald is invalid by virtue of the impediment
0: of a prior bond. And Mr. But Trump is today a bachelor following the death of Mr. his Trump first... Mr. Trump is today but. as a bachelor following the death of his first However, spouse. if Mr. How- Winklemeyer <laughs> is not a baptized Catholic, then his right. marriage to Ivana Zenyakova enjoys the presumption it of validity, is and she was therefore valid. bound by prior bond at the attempted marriage to Donald Trump in 1997, or sorry, 1977, and therefore his attempted marriage to that one being Ms. Maples, Mrs. Maples, Maples now enjoys the favor of the law because he was in fact free to marry. Valid. The, yeah, he was presumed he right. was then free to marry at the time. Everything
1: hinges on the baptismal status of Mr. Winklemeyer and Ed. I'll tell you that in the fifteen minutes I spent preparing for this discussion, I was unable to unearth whether Mr. Winklemeyer is a baptized Catholic. Or oh, that's
0: disappointing because I now I know. now I have to know
1: he is an Austrian, and many Austrians are Catholic.
0: that is true,
1: but I don't know. I tried even to do a little bit of looking up the surname i Winklemeyer is the sort of surname that could sound uh as if it were as if it were the surname of a person. Um, of the jewish religion it is this sort of surname that sometimes might be correlated with a person of the jewish religion but um i find that inconclusive and not sufficient and it also has an unusual spelling and so i'm not sure that i would say that definitively and i have found very very little about other folks sharing this surname their religious identity or otherwise and therefore i i find myself unable to reach a conclusion about mr trump's juridic status because I don't have the baptismal records of or black thereof of Mister Winkleman,
0: I am I am disappointed in this because this question remaining unanswered is basically what is standing between me and my series of Donald Trump Bachelor.
1: <laughs> I know that's right. You could not possibly, if Mister Trump were presumably married to Miss Maples, then it would be a scandal for you to produce Donald Trump the Bachelor. Well, right? A it would scandal be, be scandal for me to watch right? it. It would be, moral it would be for, you to- for me to enjoy the
0: show. I would. Oh,
1: absolutely! You would be you would be delighting in. His- you you would be like deriving delight from presume, presumable matrimonial infidelity. Yes. If, on the other hand, Donald Trump is not presumably married to Miss Maples because Mr. Winklemeyer was, baptized, was a baptized Catholic, then you could produce with no moral compunction whatsoever Donald Trump bachelor.
0: Absolutely. And I would be free to enjoy it um, without, you know, taking conscious delight in the manifest mortal sin of another person, which is obviously a sin in itself. And you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that
1: mr winklemeyer by the way is still living what well, what what
0: well let's ask him <laughs> he's a perf- he's a ski instructor he, he, he wait i'm sorry he's a living ski instructor and he got married in 1971 how old is I this dude i do
1: not know if he has retired from ski instructing he, he must was be a 100 he is well miss miss trump who also got married in 1971 was only 73 she married early she married him when she was in her early 20s, right? They married in their early 20s for the purpose of, of obtaining for her Austrian citizenship. Um, I, I think it may be worth trying to reach Alfred Winkelmeyer to find out whether or not he is a Baptist
0: I'm person. a little offended you haven't already done this, J.D. I mean, are well, you a journalist I... or not? <laughs> At the time that they
1: divorced, uh, he was living in Los Angeles and she was living in Canada and she declared, a, she obtained a sort of absentee divorce. He didn't, he didn't respond to the summons or, 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 or um, show up to the She sued him for divorce in Canada
0: despite their having been married in Austria? Well, they were married
1: actually in Prague. Ah. Uh, they were married in Prague where he, she was, um, she, she had a nationality that no longer exists. She's Czechoslovakian. Right. Right. Um, now, we could, we could prove the same thing. If we could figure out what her baptismal status was, uh, we, could fi- we could reach a different set of conclusions. Let's say she was a baptized Catholic. Well, then her marriage to um, uh, Mr. Winklemeyer would have been invalid by virtue of a lack of canonical form. Unless but her,
0: uh, he himself marriage,
1: is also Catholic. and They married in a civil ceremony. I do know that they married in a civil
0: but ceremony. Either, but may I? They married in the early 70s. Behind you know, the Iron the, Curtain, no,
1: yes, yeah. I'm it pretty sure there's that a blanket it might have dispensation impossible. in effect. Oh, it, it is. So you think that because it might have been impossible for Catholics in the early 70s in the, in, in Czechoslovakia to uh, marry according to a canonical form, that there might have been some sort of dispensation from form for them? I believe there was. That's something we'd have to look in as well, look into as well. Although, if she were a baptized Catholic. Okay, let's say she were a baptized. Actually, Catholic. The,
0: the existence of such a dispensation from canonical form as a standing matter could render this entire question of whether or not either or both of them were baptized Catholic completely moot.
1: Well, if she was no, here's why it's still interesting if whether or not she Ocus was a baptized. Okay, disparity Catholic. of cult. If she w- let's say they were both baptized Catholics. If she were a baptized Catholic, then regard then even if uh, her marriage to Mr. Winkelmeyer was for some reason invalid, um, her marriage to Mr. Trump would have been also invalid by virtue of the fact that they failed to observe canonical form in these United States in the late 1970s. Right, so um, well beyond the prospect of any sort of dispensation. Right, in the marriage here in these United States, if her marriage we to were Donald slow Trump to bringing in invalid, canonical
0: form in this country, as it happens, as a his, point of history. But yes, it was canonical form had been promulgated throughout the United right. States by the 70s.
1: If her marriage to Donald Trump was invalid by virtue of the fact that she failed to observe canonical form, then again, Donald Trump would be presumably married to Marla Maples, and you would not be able to produce your show. So his baptismal status is relevant, but hers is as well. This is fascinating. Now, here's what's interesting about the baptismal status of Mrs. Melania Trump. Do you know anything about her baptismal status?
0: Only that she is a Catholic. I remember reading that somewhere.
1: Melania Trump is a Catholic. Um... She is Slovenian by uh, by um, ethnicity and possibly citizenship, although I think she's a naturalized American citizen. I don't know if she had to um, give up her Slovenian citizenship in order to obtain American citizenship, but she is a Slovenian. She was born in 1970, and Melania Trump is a Catholic because her parents were Catholic and intended for her to be Catholic, but Melania Trump was baptized by her father in secret Oh because in Slovenia in 1971 was not free to baptize, to present one's children for baptism. Well, there you go. In as much as I can tell, I read one article saying that, and you know, again, this is in as much as I can
0: tell. But Slovenia was not a nation state in 1970, was it?
1: Right. Where Where was she living? Oh, she was living in the in the nation of, of Yugoslavia, uh huh, where religious freedom was restricted
0: very much so. But the Vatican had a very successful diplomatic policy called Ostpolitik. It was engaging within Yugoslavia at the time, and that really bore some serious for... <laughs> so um,
1: if we want to discover whether Mr. Trump is a married, is, is an unmarried person, we need to um, inquire as to the baptismal status of Mr. Winkelmeier, and, inasmuch as we're able, into the baptismal status of the first Mrs. Trump.
0: And also the existence or not of a blanket dispensation from canonical form for the right. country of the then country of Czechoslovakia during the 1970s.
1: Right. I think it may, like I'm.
0: I'm going to get 3,000 words into this next week, aren't I?
1: I'm probably going to get on a plane tonight. You know to what? see what I can find in the diocesan archive. Good for you. So I have to figure out his birthplace in Austria. So if I can find his birthplace in Austria. Uh, I could go to the. I could no. I'd have to go to his baptismal parish. Now, his baptismal parish is not supposed to hand over the records to just anyone. But I'm very charming.
0: You are, and if you bring your canon lawyer badge to prove you're not a Mormon, right? It'd be fine. It's right. It's right. That's true. That's that's right.
1: Well, let's see. Let's see what we can dig up here. And uh, and of course, may the first Mrs. Trump um, rest in eternal beatitude and peace.
0: I like how you continue to refer to her as the first Mrs. Trump when there is, of course. Oh, no, I suppose there's at least a chance there is a second, no, Mrs. Trump. Although, no, you keep saying the first Mrs. Trump. There's only one Mrs. Trump.
1: There's only one Mrs. Trump. The question is who she is. Yes. And uh, on that, we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. And if you can believe it, summertime is uh, just about halfway over, almost halfway over at least, and summer vacation for uh, kids is just about halfway over, and that means that it is time for families all across the country to start thinking about the fall, to start thinking about their
0: own families' choices for school. Uh, that is right. And one possible choice that those families might choose to make, if they, especially if they are homeschooling their children, is to use an accredited distance homeschooling curriculum, such as that provided by Seton Home Study School. Yeah. There are a lot of families who I hear from who say they're
1: interested in homeschool. They think that homeschooling might be right for their family, but they feel intimidated about the curriculum, uncertain about how to implement it, uncertain about how to make the best choices, how to choose the best textbooks. Seton Home Study School aims to take those questions out of the homeschooling decision by providing all of the things that a family needs to provide a comprehensive Catholic
0: education um, at home. That's right. It's not just a Catholic a Distance Catholic School, Seton's a publisher of its own Catholic textbooks, and some bricks-and-mortar Catholic schools have started to recognize the value of these textbooks for subjects other than just religion and are bringing them in there. And one of the things that Seton is especially proud of having done is that it incorporates lessons in the faith throughout the curriculum, so it's not just a question of studying religion in religion class, but you use the lives of the saints and other examples to ensure that, you know, the, the teaching of the faith permeates all subjects, whether it's mathematics or handwriting, or science, or whatever else.
1: So if you wonder whether Seton Home Study School might be right for your family or for your parishioners, check it out at seatonhome.org. Um, seatonhome.org, the website of Seton Home Study School, an accredited school assisting homeschooling parents with an academically excellent and authentically Catholic curriculum.
0: For more information, go to seatonhome.org.
1: And we're back, Ed, to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. We had a very important, I think, um, uh, critically important discussion in the first half of this show. And um, and now we're going to talk about some other things that are happening in the world and in the life of the Church.
0: I suppose we have to, but I'll be honest with you, I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. I wasn't was expecting great, it. And I really yeah, it was a it.
1: Great, great little excursus. It was an interesting conversation. I'll be curious to hear, you know, if you are a listener and you have some connection, say to uh, Mr. Winklemeyer and his baptismal records, I'd be grateful to uh, hear from you uh, if you are an Austrian. <laughs> Let's say you're an Austrian bishop who could very easily um, make a check into these baptismal records on my behalf. And you wanted to do that. I'm just saying uh, I would be grateful and Cardinal Schoenborn, you know, I'll leave your name out of it. Um, I don't imagine that you're keen to advertise uh, that you are a listener to the pillar, but um, if you get us these baptismal records, we'll know that you are. Ed, hi. Next, next week. Uh, actually, I think Saturday is uh, the first anniversary, or the anniversary, if you will, uh, is the anniversary of the Motu Proprio Traditiones Custodes, uh, a, a motu proprio, a policy enacted of the initiative of the Holy Father, the Bishop of Rome, Pope Francis, which aimed to regulate um, the uh, the the celebration of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass according to um, the. Liturgical books that preceded the Second Vatican Council, what once we called the extraordinary form of the Mass, and the regulation of Traditionis Custodes um, was to uh, effectively rescind many of the permissions that Benedict XVI had given for the celebration of the extraordinary form of the Mass by priests and parishes, um, ac- according to the needs of the, their, their judgment of the needs of their people, and according to their capacity to do so. That was a decision that Benedict made in a motu proprio called. Um, uh, uh,
0: Summorum Pontificum. Oh,
1: Summorum, thank you. Summorum Pontificum, and um, and many of the decisions of Summorum Pontificum were rescinded in Traditionis Custodes, which said well, that the extraordinary form of
0: the Mass... Sorry, I was going right. to say, not just many of the decisions. Summorum Pontificum was uh, expressed the abrogated. Was
1: formally, yeah, it was formally abrogated, right? Um, uh, and uh, and um, Traditionis Custodes mandated that the, the extraordinary form of the Mass, if you will, the Preconciliar liturgical books, um, could be used to offer the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass only with permission of the diocesan bishop not in parish churches that newly ordained priests could not offer the holy sacrifice of the mass without permission of their bishop and then eventually there was an extension to say permission of the holy see and um and uh that uh, no new sort of groups uh who had interest in the extraordinary form of the mass could um could receive um, permission to have it offered on their on their behalf so that was that came out a year ago. We were in Rome, actually. We were in Rome for something else. We'll talk about that next week. But we were in Rome for uh, other business, and um, uh, and this document came out where we were sitting at uh, at the at, on the on the porch of uh, my favorite hotel, which is where we like to stay in Rome. Traditiones Custodes came out, and we we worked on it. But what's happened,
0: Edward, uh, since? Uh, well, what's happened since then is you. We had an initial sort of flush of. Diocese saying that they would be looking at how to implement this in the life of uh, their local churches. Then we had last November, I think it was um, something that I guess kind of purported to be an instruction from the what was then called the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments, now the Dicastery for Divine Worship. Um, but it wasn't actually in law or in fact an instruction. Technically speaking, it was sort of a series of responses to questions. Uh, real, and in some cases I would imagine rhetorical, that had been asked of Asked or rhetorically asked. Yes, or rhetorically asked of or by the congregation about the implementation of Tritizionis Custodis, which they sought to answer in a way that um, left very little room for doubt about how the Dicastery wanted to see Traditionus Custodis brought in. Um, I mean, it was signed by the congregation's prefect, Archbishop Arthur Roach, um, it does not enjoy the sort of papal imprimatur of you know, full Petrine authority. This is not a papal act. Um, but it is meant to give a sense of what the congregation expects.
1: And what now, did that text say the congregation expects it?
0: Uh, it it said so the congregation expects basically for the bishops not to allow <laughs> the celebration of the extraordinary form um, in virtually any cases, and certainly no new cases, without referring to them first. That this was the major... Uh, explanation of the Dicasterist thinking, which was uh, what I considered to be, and I still consider to be, the, the greatest, uh, most interesting, and, and perhaps most um, overlooked reality of Traditzeos which isn't actually liturgical, it's ecclesiological. That it, 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 it represented a, a attempted radical centralization of the liturgical life of the Latin Church in saying that diocesan bishops basically didn't actually have the the fullness of um the munis decendi and regendi, um or in fact the the fullness of the of the sacramental um munis in their diocese with regards to use of the this form of the liturgy. That they needed to refer to Rome, they needed to get explicit permission. They didn't have ultimate discretion over what was done on parish property in their diocese or the recognition of different groups or the suitability of priests. All of these things. And um it's been pretty quiet since then,
1: wouldn't yeah, you say? it has been. There has not been, you know, a year ago when we talked about this, you know, um, the discussion was how will bishops implement it? What will bishops sort of do with traditional studies What will the policies be in their own diocese? There has been a relative paucity of implementation in a certain sense, Um. um It's hard to get exact data about this, um, but there are some websites that sort of say that they track the sort of implementation plans. Because traditionaries custodis effectively and the norms that came or the statements that came subsequently from the Dicastery for um, Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments um, require a kind of implementation at the local level for the bishop to sort of actualize or normalize this in his own diocese. So, It's hard to get exact numbers about how many dioceses have done so, but there are some websites that sort of record dioceses that have published or promulgated sort of implementation plans. And um, 93 out of the 176 U.S. dioceses developed, uh, sort of introduced sort of a policy. So that's like a little more than half. Um, The U.K., in the U.K., I think 28 um, dioceses have, uh, have policies or at least have track policies. How many dioceses are in the U.K.? Do you know off the top of your head?
0: Uh, what do you mean by the UK? Do you mean the do you mean the Bishop's Conference of England and Wales or the Bishop's Conference of Scotland? Or are you folding Ireland in there as well? I think I think we mean Scotland and England England and Wales. Right. But I was asking that question to try and bamboozle you to cover for the fact that I have no idea to of the track. answer.
1: Oh, okay. Fair enough. So twenty-eight dioceses in the UK have developed implementation plans, sixteen in France, fifteen in, in, in Brazil, thirteen with Poland. Um So there's a way in which one could say, okay, well, that's like 10%. Altogether, that's like 10% or less than 10% of the world's dioceses that have publicly developed um, or announced some kind of implementation plan of Tradiciones Custodes, um, you know, that there is this, you know, sort of universal policy and and only 10% of the dioceses or fewer than that have any kind of plan. On the other hand... um, the extraordinary form of the mass or the celebration of the extraordinary form of the mass was not itself sort of universally distributed. And the countries which have uh, a heavier concentration of implementation plans are also, insofar as we can tell, the countries which had a heavier concentration of use and practice of the extraordinary form. So one would expect, of course, that those would be the places where there'd be some sort of mechanism of implementation. In a diocese where the extraordinary form has never been a thing, or there's never been interest, um, or it's not, you know, sort of on the bishop's radar or whatever, what would the implementation plan say? Hey, okie dokie um it's only in dioceses where you had the extraordinary form of the mass and things like that that you would have these uh, any kind of implementation in the first place
0: yes um but nevertheless i mean it is a it is a very low number
1: do you think i mean again from my perspective uh so half of u.s dioceses yeah i suspect that um I I suspect that probably only half of U.S. dioceses, or something like that, had the extraordinary form of the Mass available before
0: the promulgation of *Traditionis Custodes*. All right, you but that mean? doesn't that does not map up with um, the dioceses that have announced some sort of public plan. It can't because there are dioceses that I know haven't formally implemented finally uh, *Traditionis Custodes*. And have Latin. Well, we know,
1: for example, that the Archdiocese of Washington, where you live, um, you know, has... Or do I? uh, We know, for example, that the Archdiocese of Washington, where you are believed to be in residence, um, has uh, 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 parishes which offer the extraordinary form of the Mass and has not yet um, promulgated an implementation plan. I'm not sure that the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, which has um, the extraordinary form of the Mass, has implemented traditiones
0: custodes has the archdiocese of Denver
1: where I live? Yes yes has has okay. November one twenty twenty one just pulled it up. official decree implementing traditiones custodes. now this is interesting because this um this decree implementing traditiones custodes predates the q and a from the from the from the, the the congregation. So what the implementation plan in my diocese says is basically the bishop has permitted certain places where the extraordinary reform was offered to continue to offer it and offered some dispensations to offer um, mass in parish churches and things like that um, does not seem, insofar as I could tell, like to take into account the things which the Q&A say, although, again, I mean, it precedes, it precedes the Q&A, so it obviously doesn't take it into account, but it doesn't seem to reflect the perspectives of the Q&A, although, again, you know, the Q&A was...
0: Um, the authority of the Q and A has been called into question by a lot of folks. So, well, it's not that the authority of the Q A has been called into question. The authority of the Q and A, the responsa ad dubia, uh, is what it is. I mean, the, the the congregations that sorry, the dicastries of the Roman Curia have been issuing responses to dubia. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. For as long as we've had a curia, and the legal yeah. force of those responses is known. It's advisory, right, yeah. effectively.
1: Yeah, that's better to say that the that the. Uh, the authority of the uh, of those responses is limited to the authority of such response, so which is not, you know, authoritative in the way that um, Archbishop Roach
0: would with, like them to be. Sorry, um, Archbishop um, Roach
1: would would like them to be, or has even framed them as being. Yes, um, it's guidance from. I think the, I think what you can say is it's guidance. There from the are More of what
0: you might call guidelines. I don't know that. Roach. That's a pop culture reference because I know it from a, a giphy meme, mimi gif, whatever it is. It's from the, it's from the Johnny Depp Pirates movie.
1: Oh, okay. I know right. this oh, because, Pirates
0: of the Caribbean. Yeah, I know this because there's a big, there's a rolling gag in it about the code. And the code being more guidelines than rules. And I know this because when I was a canon law student, there was, and maybe this was, maybe this so predates my time. here. I'm going to tell you something. You are, this is fascinating to me,
1: um, because... Um, Usually, I'm sort of the tangent guy, and you're the keep on track guy. But today, you know, I know that you're in your undisclosed location. You're having some summertime fun, but you are just, you know, I'm having uh, fun. Really...
0: I'm I'm feeling good. I'm I'm wearing a t-shirt that has the word freedom on it. I <laughs> I'm, I, I I'm having fun. I, yeah, I am. Good. It's okay. so anyhow, I, you know, we've had a lot to get through. It's, yeah, maybe I am feeling a little Friday. I'm having trouble keeping you on track. I'm I apologize for that. that. No, that's fine. But what we were saying is that traditionalist responses tr- and the tr- response ad dubia are not the, the, the yeah. custodius is law. It is a mode appropriate of the Holy Father, but yeah. relies upon the particular implementation of the diocesan bishop to achieve the force of particular law in the diocese. The response ad dubia issued by the dicastery for divine worship is essentially an advisory opinion. It can offer more or less insight into the men's legislaturis as theorized by the dicastery, which you would think is the one responsible for giving that kind of insight, but it's not legally enforceable in the sense it's not law. Big
1: picture, backing up a little bit, there are dioceses in the United States which have not implemented Christiane's custodius policies. There are dioceses which have. I kind of went down a rabbit hole of Denver, and that was on me. There There are dioceses which have. There are dioceses which have not. Um... There are, you know, you, you you say it's surprising that many dioceses uh, have um, not implement developed well, implementation. Well, but, but okay, so let's I'm not talk surprised about that. By that.
0: You're not you say you're not surprised by that, and I am surprised by that. So, for example, we have reported in the past that you brought up the example of the Archdiocese of Washington. They have a plan for the implementation of Transiens Custodis. We know what it says. We know it's in a drawer somewhere. We've reported on all of this, but it has not been issued. Why? What's what's the holdup?
1: Well. I, I guess my point would be I, I, I guess my I guess my thought about that Ed is is that um I don't know how reasonable it is to think that the uh that part- okay, so Traditiones Custodes, you know there were rumors that something was gonna come out, but Traditiones Custodes kind of came out of nowhere. Um there were not drafts that were circulated among the bishops or the other things that used to happen when law uh you, you know when laws were promulgated it was not seen by a whole lot of people before it was published there was no leak or anything like that we consultation process or consultation process and uh and so most bishops were you know not sure what to expect if they you know if they even thought anything was coming so it comes out a year ago um there is a need to um for bishops in order to implement it then in december come out these guidelines so that you know it cuts it down even more if the bishops want to follow those guidelines um then uh, there is a need i mean tradition itself sort of speaks to a need to sort of study the local situation in order for implementation and to understand the local situation so you know do i think it's reasonable to expect that every place would have a particular law out within a year no do i think it's possible that the archdiocese of washington might promulgate its implementation policy on the anniversary which is i think on saturday yeah that's possible if it is uh, i told my wife that i wouldn't work this saturday so we're gonna have to deal with that on monday um but uh um you know, I, I guess I don't think that taking I don't think that taking time to develop particular law in response to universal law is a bad thing. In fact I generally think it is a good thing. Now that might now that means that there is a period of legal uncertainty and the Archdiocese of Washington is in that period of legal uncertainty right now. And I don't know what the motivation of Cardinal Gregory is not to release a policy that you and I believe is sitting in a drawer somewhere and has already had consultation with the Presbyteral Council and other places and we've reported about that. Um, I don't know why it's still sitting in a drawer, but in principle, I don't think it's a bad thing for particular law to have, you know, you know, for universal law to have a moment to breathe before its particular applications are promulgated.
0: Well, I don't disagree with that, and it's a lovely idea in principle, and I totally support it. I would, I would appreciate it if, in the church, we had a little bit more thoughtful reflection and consultation and development in the production of universal law these days. But right. that's that. My point is not that. My point is not why would anyone conceivably take a year to draft a particular law. My point is, I don't believe that forty-seven percent of U.S. dioceses don't have a um, a particular application of traditionalist custodis because they are still necessarily consulting and drafting and thinking and reflecting. Many of them are oh, sure. Okay, okay. I'm I think sure
1: some are, but yeah, there are some that just
0: haven't. Probably. I think there's a significant number of dioceses. I. I don't have a number in mind, but I could come up with one if I sat down and thought about it for long enough, where the bishop knows how, if he has to, he would implement Traditionus Custodis in his diocese, and I think that quite a lot of um, bishops in this country and others, for example, you know, you mentioned that you know, there's you know, 50%, 53% or whatever it is of U.S. diocese having Traditionus Custodis application on the books is extraordinarily high and you mentioned that you know yeah there's this you know question of well is there a higher incidence of the um uh of the old style of the mass in US diocese to begin with relative places it's fine but for example i think it's like 16% of french dioceses have implemented traditionis custodis and i don't think the pro- extraordinary form of the mass is very popular in france yeah. to be sure so i think i think a lot of people are just kind of you know ignoring it no i wasn't going to say ignoring that that would be wrong you Slow be, rolling it. I I was going to say, just kind of putting their hands in their pockets and, you know, looking over their shoulder and just kind of like,
1: oh. I think that's probably true. I think there are bishops in the U.S., in France, and elsewhere who are sort of saying, oh. But let's what does that tell it. us?
0: That That's my yeah. point. Is So that's bishops an are basically question. hesitant to implement a law in a way in which they know they would implement it if they were made to. And they are just kind of shuffling their feet and going, oh, I hope nobody notices. Maybe right. this will all just go Agree away. Agree
1: with or disagree with the law? What does it mean that dioceses. Which probably have the extraordinary form of the mass have not done
0: seemingly anything with this. Yeah. Which is, it's there's. I think if you look at, for example, the archdiocese of Washington, which does not have a huge number of parishes or other places or communities that celebrate the extraordinary form, it's not a huge number. Some, a few. You know, again, we've reported on the situation there. Um, but I no one would call Cardinal Gregory a trad, liturgically speaking. I right. don't think, nor. Do I get the impression that he's especially shy of enacting the will of the Holy Father as he sees it when he wants to? But I think if you have somewhere like even the Archdiocese of Washington isn't in a hurry to get this on the books, it tells you something about, if not the nature of traditionist Custodias itself, at least the sort of feather-spitting attempts to bring it about in a particular way by Archbishop Roach's Dicaster for Divine Worship, which is that, at least, is an implementation plan that's designed to pick a fight. It's designed to alienate people. It's designed to be, I'd say, punitive. That's its tone. Not just punitive against communities that have particular liturgical preferences, but punitive against diocesan bishops. I mean, it is it is an erosion of their authority and a... a one thing we've said before is that it puts
1: bishops, traditionary custodians, because it requires a localized implementation, puts bishops in the position of effectively having to be the bad guys with those members of their presbyter who want to celebrate the extraordinary form, and those members of their of their diocese. That, but at the same captains.
0: time, it subverts the bishop's authority. This is the thing; so it makes them R- right. be the heavy, and at the same time, it takes their authority away. It subverts the ecclesiology of Vatican II and says that, in in, in, with regard to their ability to make judgments about these yeah. kinds
1: of things. Now, I think it would be different if the, I, I mean, it's, I, I I don't know, would you say that it subverts the the um, ecclesiology of Vatican II if the Holy Father had simply said, we don't celebrate a court, Mass according to the preconciliar books, period? I, I don't, I, I think that is a universal law. I think what you're upset about is that there is this notion that the traditionis custodi says, bishops should regulate the liturgy in their dioceses, and that includes regulating this thing which is still permitted, but permitted only under limited circumstances, and then a kind of... Um, and then a kind of resting of the, of the authority of bishops to kind of make the decisions about that permission from them and centralizing it in the congregation. Yeah, is that
0: right? Absolutely. That that, yeah. that to me is the real problem. And again, this is much more explicit in, in Roche's rules than in Tratius Custodius itself, although it's present in both. Um, is this idea that the bishop does not, as the Second Vatican Council taught, have the fullness of authority to regulate all matters pertaining to divine worship in his diocese that I, you know, if the Pope got up tomorrow and said, you know what, we're only going to have one liturgy in the Latin church and it's going to be this one. And everybody is going to do the red and say the black. And this is all there is. There's no deviation. There's no exceptions. It's a universal law. I I mean, you might question the, the prudence of such a thing, but I like from a legal perspective, I, I don't see a necessary problem with that. Um, but what, what's what been done with Stratiscus Custodius, I think, is ecclesiologically very problematic. It, it, it goes against Vatican II. It is a subversion of the authority and the apostolic role of the diocesan bishop, which the Second Vatican Council was all about recovering.
1: See, I, 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 I definitely hear that. I, I, think, I think it has to be—I think we have to sort of lay out and more clearly identify The um, emphasis in the First Vatican Council of the primacy um, of the Roman pontiff and the universality of the Roman pontiff's authority of governance with the emphasis in the Second Vatican Council and Christus Dominus and Lumen Gentium of the sort of dignity and role of the diocesan bishop. And until that happens, maybe I've said this before, but until that happens, what I feel like is um, take the sort of your political position out of it and just, you know, like you whether you think X is a good idea or a bad idea or X is a lefty idea or a righty idea, and just look at the sort of swing until that happens. I I think what we have seen in church governance over the last, I I would say, probably 40 years is just a swing back and forth um, or or a push-pull, a sort of a um, tug-of-war, if you will, between Vatican policies which emphasize the authority of the diocesan bishop and Vatican policies which centralize things in the authority of their own pontiff. And in some cases, you know, there were, like, let's take um, let's take penal law, right? In some cases, there was an effort to, uh, there was an initial effort to sort of uh, localize policy to say the diocesan bishop is the lawmaker, the diocesan bishop exercises real governance, he's not a branch manager, the diocesan bishop should exercise governance over his church, and the bishop didn't do it. And then you see the Holy See saying, okay, well, if the bishop's not going to do it, then we have to do it. That that's the story of penal law over the last four years. Right? So um so in some cases you sort of have it where it didn't work. In other cases, um like traditiones custodes and sumorum pontificum and before that the indult and like this liturgical thing has just been a back and forth and, and it's not it's not I don't think it's because the bishop has done it or not done it. I think it's effectively This push-pull has been undergirded by kind of, you know, sort of theological-political questions about who's in authority and what they think about the liturgy and these kinds of things. But the real narrative is that there's no settling on how does the church resolve the question of these two poles of authority in the church: the the central pole of authority of the Roman Pontiff and the Curia, which is system and governance, and then the real and legitimate. Um, authority um, and responsibility of the diocesan bishop who leads the particular church in which the universal church um, exists and is you know and uh, and and in which the universal church is expressed, um, and uh, and you know it's not just a question of you, you keep saying it goes against the Vatican two, but someone could just as easily say well this is precisely the the sort of obligation of the Roman Pontiff in accord with Pastor Turnus or the other Vatican one thing, right so it's um it's a reconciliation of these two. Um, Emphases which are not in contradiction with each other, but which offer different emphases about the notion of governance in the life of the church.
0: Sure, for traditionalist, I would agree. There's a tension there, and it can be worked with and seen different ways and played. But this is not the case with the Responsa. The,
1: the, that's okay. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think the Responsa was a was a more sort of aggressive power grab of the, the problem with the response was in certain ways it went well beyond what traditionis Custodes said it said exactly. traditionis Custodes said you have to consult let's put it in concrete traditionis Custodes said you have to consult with us about x y and z but what traditionis Custodes meant by consult was get our permission yes and uh yeah and so about the about the permission of young priests to celebrate the extraordinary form about something about locations so, so when you say it goes against Vatican II I think that's what you mean is that is what I mean it, 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 it asserts for the authority of the congregation the ability to go of praetor legend beyond the law itself to, to, uh, to, um, to tell
0: the, restrict to, the authority of the diocese yeah, To tell the diocesan bishop that he is not competent to make discernments about his diocesan clergy, that he has to refer to the diacastery for divine worship and receive permission, which not only do they not have, again, not only does the this response not have the, the, the legal force to do that. I mean, that's just concretely not what the document does at a legal level, despite, again, what it purports to do. But again, the ecclesiology of it is just, it's very troubling. It places not the Petrine office over the office of the diocesan bishop as head of but the particular the bureaucratic tribe. office. It, the yeah, bureaucratic it places apparition. the administration. It places the administrative function over the, over the munis regendi of the diocesan bishop and uh, the yeah, Party. an
1: analogy would be, uh, you know, an analogy would be um, an administrative rule, not a sort of executive, a congressional act, um, not a congressional act, sort of gov- restricting in some way the prerogative of states or something like that, or constitutional amendment restricting the prerogative of states, but an administrative decision of a of a of a sub, some sort of sub cabinet official in, in the executive branch. May, pronouncing some rule which dramatically restricted the authority of state governors. It would be like, well, oh, wait a minute. thats not, I don't think that's how the system works. And that, I think, is the real challenge here. Is, um, the, I don't think that's how the system works. The kind of assertion of an authority which goes beyond the law, um, the back and forth about what the law the, is or not is here, The, the, the um, if it is true that there has been um, a reluctance to implement the thing or an indifference to sort of in implementing the thing, all of those things come together to suggest um, an indifference to the rule of law in the church and the church as a society and society, you know, as as John Paul says in in, in um, the uh, promulgation of the eighty three code, um, the law aids in um, the flourishing of grace and the charisms in the life of the church because it gives us a justly ordered society. And there are lots of issues. There are a number of issues at the contemporary moment in the life of the church where there's a lot of ambiguity about what the law is or who should be making the law. I think there's more ambiguity about that than there has been for a little while um, uh, about what the law is or who's empowered to make certain decisions or why dicasteries interpret phrases, you know, different dicasteries interpret the same phrase to mean different things or these kinds of things. And all of that, I think, contributes to a sense for those who sort of pay attention to um, the the, the administration of the life of the church that there is a, a diminishment of the rule of law. Now, on things like... Um, on things like uh, you know the alienation of property, it's still pretty clear that you know you have to follow the law with regard to ordinary and extraordinary administration. Do diocesan tribunals function according to the rule of law with regard to the sacraments that you and I outlined so well in the Marla Maple game? Um, but um, but on a lot of things that pertain to sort of the the relationship of governance between bishops and uh, the Holy See, there's ambiguity about what the law is or how it's implemented. Think about. Bosestis Lex Mundi, where there, you know, was, were great degrees of sort of promise of how procedures would work, and now procedures don't work that way. Or the implementation, of, or the um, the promulgation of Come Una Madre Amor Viola. Amore the, Vole. Uh, amore Vole. Um, uh, no, say which, it with an accent. Say it like you mean No, it. you know, they never correct my pronunciation at the f- That's why I like it so much. Um,
0: yeah, we're going to have to bleed that out again. <laughs> uh,
1: you know the 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 introduction of a court which says it's designed a Vatican court which says it's designed to address a specific thing, and then um, doesn't uh, ever get used to address that specific thing when that specific thing exists in the life of the church. On the one hand, at this moment, you have um, you have areas of the church where the rule of law is um, being applied concretely in ways that it has not been in quite some time. Um, and uh, by that I mean the Vatican Finance Trial. The Vatican Finance Trial is a great indication of, in, of, of intention on the part of the Holy Father to ensure that the rule of law is followed with regard to financial administration in the apparatus of the Roman Curia. So on the one hand, you have that. On the other hand, you have you know, bishops like this Puerto Rican bishop saying, um, I was removed without not only notification of why I was removed, but also without the sort of formal and procedural steps that the law says I get, before I'm going to be removed. Like I just was, I just got sort of tossed out without any of the things which the law says I have a right to have. And so you have this unbalanced thing where in one, some areas the law is being applied very, rather concretely and in some areas not, or delay, delay, delay. So, you know, um, the implementation of Tradiciones Custodes or the unresolved question of Brebooth Jesuit High School in Indianapolis. So places where the laws is being implemented well, places where the laws seemingly just sort of um, uh, ignored without clarity about why, or where there's a sort of power grab on the part of the bureaucratic apparatus of the Holy See, and then places where there seems to be a delay in the application of the law. And that all of that points, I, it's a mixed bag. I mean, I, I do think it's a mixed bag, but Traditiones fits into it.
0: I don't know that I, 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 I agree with, you know, I, what I see is uh, the sort of unifying thread in all of this, I think, is that the rule of law in the Church comes down to the assertion of authority. And... Sometimes the authority is asserted, sometimes it's not sometimes there's a tussle over who gets to assert the authority and over whom but the, un, the you know you talk about um the problem of the rule of law, and I would agree, but I would say that you know the real death of justice is the reduction of the rule of law to the simple imposition of authority and the power to impose, and that's a real problem because that's where you get as you were just pointing out asymmetrical examples of how bishops are treated with regard to the provision of the law or not treated with regard, with any regard to the law. It's how you get asymmetry in, you know, you mentioned the Vatican financial trial. Sure. But you know, again, you can, we've got 10 people on trial facing a 500 page indictment file, but I can think off the top of my head of like three or four glaring instances and, I would say uh what what an, what a US diocesan reviewer would call a credible and substantiated accusation, which hasn't been charged with regard to uh maladministration uh, of financial effects in the Holy See, clearly appearing to clearly contradict the, the laws passed by Pope Francis. That you know, we have this asymmetry of application of the law, and that all comes back to well, what is the law for? Do we understand the law as a fundamental good of justice and like you said, the the skeleton of a coherent society or do we just understand the exercise of authority and it's capricious exercise on occasion or at least it's apparently arbitrary exercise and that's kind of what I think is the mystery behind the hesitation in bringing Tradesius custodis into particular law in many dioceses is I wonder is this a or an, an adoption of this same understanding of the rule of law I say well the law is what you choose to enforce so i'm you know i'm just not going to look at this one and uh that's how some that's how things are done now apparently and if so that's not a sign of a healthy society um and i mean in other cases perhaps it's something else perhaps it's you know sensitivity to well maybe this might change maybe this is an open question maybe we do want to do more consultation i'm not suggesting it's all one thing anywhere but I do think you're right that this points to an unhealthy legal culture which we've developed in the church, which is unusual because we've had way more legislation in the last 10 years than we have in the previous 20.
1: Yeah, yes. Legislation um, works in a context in, a, in the context of of, of, a, of a sort of functional legal system. And I guess my point is there are ways in which the church's legal system. Is functional and and ways in which it's newly functional, and ways in which it's in need of I think um,
0: attention. Yes.
1: Well, that's a dour note.
0: Want to go back to talking about the? Let's talk about Donald Trump Bachelor as a TV pilot. <laughs> oh man! Ah,
1: no. You know what? Just um, uh, how's uh? Tell me something, Ed. Tell me something great, man. I don't want to end on that note.
0: Uh, the child learned to crawl.
1: That's so, great.
0: It, I mean, it, 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 as sort of a, a road, a, 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 um, a marker on the road of human development. Yes, it is great. Uh, great. It's complicated my daily life, no end.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I'll tell you something cool that I that happened this week that uh, that uh, we ha- did not, were not able to cover, or I was planning to cover it, and then I had to go to a, uh, a, a, a funeral in my family. But I'll tell you something cool that happened this week. Um... I have heard from a bunch of educators who um, were in Washington, D.C. this week for the um, Institute for Catholic Liberal Education, sort of education conference, which focuses on kind of a uh, a renewal in Catholic education along the lines, effectively, of the the guidelines of Gravissimus Educationus, the Second Vatican Council's document on education. And um, what I have heard from everyone is just, what I heard from everybody who was there was just the way in which there seems to be a sort of emerging renewal in, um, in Catholic education, in a lot of dioceses, in a lot of Catholic schools, an emerging sort of focus on Christian identity, Christian formation, and, uh, and, a, and, and a Christian curriculum, which I, I think is cool and which I'm hoping to be able to do some reporting on what that experience uh, was and, uh, and, uh, and and whether that renewal, what the sort of depth and scope of that reported renewal um, actually is. So that was something that, cool that I was just hearing about that I think we'll hopefully have some reporting on coming up soon.
0: That is That is good and cool, yeah. as you say. With that said, if, uh,
1: uh, if, um, if homeschooling seems like it might be the thing that is right for your family, this episode of the Pillar Podcast was brought to you by Seton Home Study School. Check out Seton Home Study School, an accredited Catholic school with uh, uh, probably the largest in the country with uh, thousands of registered students and emphasis on Catholic holistic education. Check out the website, Seatonhome.org to decide whether Seton Home Study School might be right for your family. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and NJD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. Joined by my podcasting partner and the executive producer of Donald Trump Bachelor, Ed Condon. Our executive producer is Kate Olver. can't remember if I said that. We'll be back next week.